Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, welcome to the Rashi Shir, and we resume in the middle of Parshat Noach, actually at the beginning of Revi'i, which is Perachet Pasuk Tet Vav. And we're in the process, the flight is all over, and it's time to come out of the Teva, and in a sense to build World 2.0. But we'll get more onto that when we get to Perak Tet. So Pasuk Tet Vav says, Hashem spoke to Noach, saying, and there's not much to say on that, and there's no Rashi to say on that, so we'll go straight on to the next one. Pasuk Tet Zayim, Tsei min ha-teva, Ata ve-ishtacha u-vanecha vanecha itach. Go out of the Teva, you and your wife and your sons, and the wives of your sons with you. Now, you might remember Rashi's been very particular about how the order in which people are told to go into the Teva and the order they're told to come out of the Teva. Um, because we learnt earlier in... Uh, sorry, I forget where, but it's actually, I think it's more than once, that when they went into the Teva, it was you and your sons and your wife and your wife's, uh, and the sons of your wife, like the men first and then all the women. Now it's the men and the women mixed up in their uh, marital groupings. And when Rashi, and when, when they went into the Teva, separate men and women, Rashi said they were forbidden to have Tashmishamita, sexual relations, in the Teva. And now he says, um, on this Pasuk Tetzayin, Ish the Ishto, each person with their spouse. Kan hitir lahem tashmish hamita. Now he permitted them to have relations. So while they were in the Teva, it was forbidden. And Rashi's mentioned it more than once. And now they come out of the Teva, it is permitted. However, Rashi doesn't actually draw our attention to what happens in Pasuk Yudchet. But we will jump to Pasuk Yudchet and we notice the following. Vayetze noach uvanav ishto unishevanav ito. So when they came out, what do you notice? The order's like it was. The order's like it was going in. It was the men followed by the women. And since Rashi is so mediac on this point, it must mean that they did not take advantage of the permission to have relations again. Now, fortunately, that fits with what Rashi says in Perak Tet, Pasuk Tet. So if you jump there... <coughs> The Pasuk says, Hashem says to Noah, et briti. Behold, I will establish my covenant itchem with you ve'et zarachem acharehem and with your children after you. So we'll understand the context of that when we get to it. But if you just look at Rashi, um, uh, on the word, Rashi's explaining, ani hinani, I behold I. <coughs> what does that mean? It says Rashi there in Perak Tep, Pasuk Tep, maskim ani imacha. I agree with you. Because Noach was worried to engage in repopulating the earth. Until Hashem promised him not to destroy the world again. So it all fits. Even though Hashem gave him permission on leaving the ark to engage in Pirivirivya, we see in Pasuk Yudchet that According to Rashi's way of designating this, Noah didn't uh, accept, if you like, the permission. 
And in Perak Tet, Pasuk Tet, Rashi tells us why Noach didn't accept the permission. So it's nice that it all fits. Oh, yes? Just on this, though, there's like, there must be a certain time period from when he, I'm assuming that Hashem was commanded, to when they actually went out of the... No, this is not, this is the, this is, they're about to go out. I, I mean, and then, then so I'm asking, what's the time period of when they were allowed to, but they didn't fulfill? They didn't uh, I don't know. It sounds, it sounds pretty short term. Because I, we jumped to Pasuk Tet, but that's all straight after they're coming out the table. Uh, they, Noah, as we will see, built an altar and offered sacrifices, and Hashem says they're not going to destroy the world. And he gives them a few rules. It sounds like it's pretty, pretty um, immediate. Okay. okay, now we can go on to Pasuk Yud Zion. So, just to recap, because we jumped ahead, in Pasuk Tet Zion, Hashem said, now come out of the ark to the humans. And then he says in Yud Zion, Kol hachaya asher itcha, all the living things which are with you, mikol basar from all flesh, baof with birds ubehema and animals ubechol haremes haromes al haaretz and all creepy things that creep on the earth. And now we have a ketiv and a kari, which means the way it's written in the Torah is not the way it's read when it's read. Now, there are a few, quite a few, occurrences of this in the Torah. There's also many more in the rest of Nach. Um, they come, their, their origin, to be honest, is, is not known, but we, we work on the basis that they are an integral part of the Torah. When the Torah was given, that there were certain words that Hashem said, this is how they're to be read, and this is how they're to be written, and they're not the same. And we darshan, we expound the meaning of the ketiv, the written text, and the meaning of the um, spoken text, as we will in just a moment. So it's, it's written as Hotse, and it's read as Haitse. Spelt very similar. These Ketiv and Kri usually are very similar. There's a couple of instances where it's a completely different word, but that's a very special case. But otherwise, it's just a Vav turned into a Yud, or Yud turned into a Vav, as it is in this case. Uh, so it's something to do with bring out. Itach, with you. V'sharatsu ba'aretz. And they will swarm, that's all these animals, all these living creatures, they will swarm on the earth. Uparu uravu al haaretz, and they will be fruitful and they will multiply on the earth. So Rashi helps us with this business of the Ketiv and the Kari. So, what is the meaning of Hotse and what is the meaning of Haitse, and why are they both there, as it were, in the same word? So Rashi says, Hotse Ketiv, it's written Hotse, and Haitse Kari, and it's read as Haitse. Rashi, by the way, doesn't always explain this, this Ketiv and Kari business, but here he does. Haitse means emor lahem sheyetsu. Say to them that they should go out. Hotse means im enom rotsim. If they do not wish, let's say, to come out, hotsiam ota. You bring them out yourself. So, in a sense, they're both a causative. They're both Noah should act in a way that the animals come out, but one's much more direct than the other. The first version, which is the, uh, the, the, the Kri, the one we read, which Rashi says is like the first plan A, is say to them to come out. So all Noah has to do is give a word and they will follow his instruction. He doesn't have to lift them up. He doesn't have to push them. He just has to say a word. That's Haitse. And then Hotse is you actually take them out. You actually force them out. So probably you push them out or you carry them out. And that, says Rashi, is plan B. Im enam rotsim, let's say, hotsiam atah. 
Um, it's pointed out that, and, and I, my, my knowledge of Diktuk, which uh, has, well, it used to be okay, but it's completely forgotten with uh, disuse. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly what the HIFO form should be, but I saw it suggested that the Yud in Heitze should not actually be there in the strict grammatical sense. But because it's there, it sort of suggests that it's <coughs> halfway to Hotze. <coughs> Pardon me. So that's why these two um, really are part of the same word. There's one word. It happens to be read one way and, read, and, and written a different way. It's, you know, like Zohar um, V'shamah almost. Um, and Rashi understands that both meanings are relevant and both meanings are similar. They're not really very, very far apart from each other. And I'm not saying that the Yud looks like a Vav. That's not the point I'm making. But the fact that the Yud is there... Um, brings the word Heitze closer to the word Hotze. Uh, and the, the, the particular point that Rashi is making is that they are two alternative actions that Noah can take. And whether he takes the first or the second depends on the circumstances in which he finds himself. So he has to bring out the animals. Ideally, it's a Heitze, Heitze, he just says to them. But if not, then it's a Hotze. So Rashi, as, as he often does, sets up where, where the Pasuk seems to be saying two things, Rashi says one is the alternative to the other depending on circumstances. Okay, then Rashi's got something to say on the Sharetsu Ba'aretz, and it's this topic which we just discussed in the previous Pasuk already. Says Rashi, uh, they should swarm in the land, that's what the Pasuk says, Velo Bateva, and not in the Teva. Magid Sha'af Habahema Vaha'of Ne'esru Batashmish. This teaches you that even the animals and the birds were forbidden to have relations in the Teva. So why does Rashi need to say this again? He has said it before, because he's explaining the word Ba'aretz, because the Pasuk doesn't need the word Ba'aretz. Obviously, if they're coming out of the Teva, and then they're going to do their swarming, obviously they're out the Teva, because the whole point is, they're coming out the Teva. So why does the Pasuk need to say Ba'aretz? Answers Rashi, it's stressing that the Sharetzu the, the uh, swarming is only to be Ba'aretz. It is not to be Bateva. And that's what the Ba'aretz comes to stress. That we're now entering a new realm of permitted activity. That applies Ba'aretz. It doesn't apply Bateva. Um, you could say that, in fact, it's now explaining why Noah has to take the animals out. You could say, based on this last part of Rashi, that the Sharetzu can be translated as, so they should swarm, because they're not allowed to swarm in the Teva. So then, well, the whole point is, Hashem says to, to Noah, take them out, so they are able to swarm on the earth. That Vav on Vasharatsu, this isn't explicit in Rashi, and I'm not sure it really is there, but it's suggested that that Vav can be read as the Vav of, I'm not quite sure what Vav you would call it, but the Vav of uh, causative relation, there, yeah, I've just called it one, there, as opposed to just a simple and, but it means, and therefore they will be able to. And we do see it used in that sense elsewhere, and we've seen Rashi make that point as well. Okay, any other questions? No. Nope. Is that um, also like meant to be a tense-changing Um Yes, you're right. Shout out to, thank you. The question is, is that Vav also the Vav conversive? or the Vava Hippuch, that changes the past to the future. Um, yes, it is. I think it has to be, because the Sharetsu is a past tense, and it's meaning that they will do the swarming in the future. Um, I think it can have more than one meaning, though. I mean, it can mean and, 
as well as to change the tense. It has to have some sort of prepositional meaning here, because otherwise the buzzer, then it doesn't make sense. Um, after it says, Hotsei itach, there must be an and or a therefore or a something like that. It can't just say, Hotsei itach, they will swarm. So even if it is a Vov conversive, and I think it is, thank you, um, I think it must mean something else as well. Maybe simple, maybe not so simple. <coughs> now we get to Vazit Yudchet, which actually we've already met, which says, so finally, he comes out of the Teva with his sons, with his wife, and his son's wife. <coughs> and then we read in Pasuk Yotet, Kol ha-chaya, kol ha-remes, v'chol ha-of, all the animals, or all the living things, sorry, all the things that creep, all the birds, v'chol ha-remes, al ha-aretz, everything that moves on the earth, Le mishpachotehem, to their, or by their families, or to their families, yatsu min hateva. They went out from the teva. Rashi says on the word le mishpachotehem, kiblu alehem almanat lidabek beminam. They accepted upon themselves, almanat means on condition to cleave to their species. If we turn, see if I can remember where it is, it's at the beginning of Noach, we learn, and Rashi's mentioned this before as well, that the animals were also destined for destruction because they, uh, yeah, here we are, Perak Vav Pasuk Yud Bet. If you turn all the way back to Perak Vav Pasuk Yud Bet, in fact, Pasuk Yud Aleph says, V'tishachetah aretz tefnei alokim v'timolei ha'aretz chamas, the earth was corrupted before Hashem and the earth was full of Hamas, violence or robbery. Hashem saw the land was corrupted because all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Says Rashi there on Hishchit Kol Basar. They had relations with other species. Now, there's a big problem, we mentioned this before, of what sort of Yetzirah do they have? Uh, how can you judge animals? Um, but you can avoid the question by saying that it's not Hashem's plan that the animals intermingle with each other. Actually, it's forbidden, and it's, a, it's, an, it's a, the right to, to crossbreed animals. It's not Hashem's plan that animals should interbreed with each other. So uh, whether it was like an act of uh, an Aveira, which is hard to say in, in the case of an animal, but it wasn't Hashem's plan. So now, after the Teva, the animals must stick with their own species. And what does Kiblu Alehem mean? How do they accept it upon themselves when they're only animals? I'm not quite sure, but that's how Rashi understands the word mishpachotehem, that they will stick with their families, i.e. their species. Why does Rashi have to say this? Why can't it mean they went out with their families? Any thoughts? They don't have any Why didn't they have any families? Well, there were only two of them. And there were only two of them. And Rashi's just said they weren't allowed to have relations in the Teva. Uh, Ibn Ezra, for instance, I just happened to see, says the Mishpachotehem probably means by their families because they were born in the Teva. He doesn't go with this whole thing that they weren't allowed to have relations in the Teva, which perhaps is a more logical um, and more 
shut orientated question answer. Let me just finish this. So, so since Rashi has said more than once that the animals didn't have relations in the Teva, and you're right, there were only two of them to start with, so they didn't have any children, so Mishpachotehem cannot mean families, therefore it must mean species, as Rashi says. Yes? Yes, well, we said a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the Orev, the raven. So Rashi says that the raven didn't fly away from the Teva because it suspected Noah of having designs on Mrs. Raven. Okay? Which is very hard to understand on a number of levels. And by the way, I stress then, it doesn't mean that that was a correct suspicion. It doesn't mean that was in Noah's mind. It was in the raven's mind. But we can learn from that that if, Noah, if the raven thought that's what Noah might want to do, that must mean what the raven had himself had wanted to be doing. So that's the source for the idea maybe you're referring to, that the raven did not keep that rule or did not want to keep that rule. Yes? Uh, was the lifespan of every species long enough so they would not die out? That is a brilliant question. I've never thought of that before. I've never seen that addressed before. I have to say, and it's a bit of a cop-out, it must have been. Okay? Amongst the many miracles that were performed in the Teva, it must have been. And considering you know, the average fruit fly has got a lifespan of a day, they, the only way that the story makes sense um, is if they were miraculously extended. And it's not a problem because there were so many miracles going on, starting from the fact that all the animals fitted into a box, 300 by 50 by 30. That's pretty miraculous itself. So I've got no problem assuming there were other miracles as well. There could be an extended, I'm just thinking now, humans lived longer before as well. So maybe animals have longer lifespan then and only changed after. Maybe, oh, maybe. So Noah lived for 900 years, although it went, the lifespan went down pretty quickly exactly. after that yeah. to, to yeah. a mere 200 or so. Um, uh, which is only like one and a half times our lifespan. So maybe the fruit flies on that basis would live for two and a half days. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, it could be. I, I, I think it's a brilliant question. And the only answer could, the only answer possibly is yes, somehow. That's only if you hold shit up like Russia. Yes, if you hold like Russia. If you hold like Ibn Ezra, then a fruit fly might have gone into the Teva and that fruit fly's great, 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 great grandchild came out if you don't hold like Rashi. But if you, rush, if you hold like Rashi, and he seems pretty fixed on this idea because he's mentioned it more than once, then it has to be that they somehow miraculously lived the whole year. Okay. Pasuk Kaf. Vayiven Noach mizbeach la'ashem. Noach built an altar to Hashem. Vayikach mikol ha-behema ha-tahora. And he took from all the kosher animals, or mikol ha-of ha-tahor, and all the kosher birds, and he offered up burnt offerings on the Mizbeach. Um, you'll remember that one set of instructions talked about taking animals two by two, and another set of instructions talked about taking animals seven by seven. And Rashi um, explained the apparent contradiction by saying it's the non-kosher animals that were two by two, and it was the kosher animals that were seven by seven. And this, says Rashi, this teaches us that Noah learned Torah. And when we say Tameh and Tahor, we mean kosher and non-kosher. 
uh, in the, the way the expression is used in many other places in the Torah to talk about kashrut, basically. So Noah knew what, which animals were kosher, which animals were not kosher. He was not Jewish. He didn't have to eat kosher. But he did know the difference, and he took the extra animals um, uh, of the kosher ones. And now it's the kosher ones that he offers up on the Mizbech. And I have to tell you, I'm very excited by the Rashi we're just going to learn. There's a, there's a vote on it, which I've often um, promulgated. Now that we're learning Rashi very carefully, I'm not sure I'm right, but I'll give you both. So Rashi says on the words, Mikol Behema Hatahora, from all the kosher animals. Amar, he said, Lo tziva li hakodesh baruchu, lahachnis me'elu shiva shiva. I'm going to take out the double negative. Hashem only commanded me to bring in, i.e. to bring into the Teva from these ones, from these kosher ones, seven by seven, only in order to offer a sacrifice from them. In other words, now paraphrase slightly, Noah sat down and he said, now why on earth did Hashem tell me to bring in all these kosher animals? Ah, it must be to offer a sacrifice from them, and that's what he does here, straight after coming out of the Mizbech. Uh, of the table. Oh, did, did he didn't eat the animals? Uh, no. Uh, did he eat the animals in the table? Yeah. No. No, no. No, no, no. We'll come to that later. They weren't allowed to eat animals. What and it would have been pretty foolish to, you know, Kill bring off, in off two, two of each species and then eat them, which would... No, no, the, 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 the pure ones, the ones that he could eat, he, there were seven. The whole uh, okay. Correct. We're going to come to that. Probably not this week, um, but we are coming to that very soon. But no, he didn't eat the animals. So the extra ones, the six, sorry, the five kosher ones, he offered as a carbon. Now, I want you to look at, and there's a few examples of what I want to point out, but we can look at, uh, for instance, Yudbet Chet. Yudbet Chet. So this is the Sedra of Lechlecha, which focuses on Avraham Avinu. And Abraham is told to go to Canaan, and in Pasuk Zion, and in other places, but this is just the one I saw. Hashem appeared to Abraham and he said, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And he built there a Mizbeach to Hashem, who appeared to him. And if you look on Rashi, on Vayiven Shom Mizbeach, Rashi says, Al Basurat Hazera, the Al Basurat Eretz Israel. For the good news of having children and the good news of being given Eretz Israel. What does it not say? It does not say, Abraham sat down and thought, Oh, Hashem must be giving me a hint that I should build a Mizbeach. I know what I'll do, I'll build a Mizbeach. In other words, where did the idea to build a Mizbeach come from in Abraham's case? Spontaneous. From whom? From Abraham. Okay. In the case of Noah, Rashi is saying, he, he built a Mizbech, and it's wonderful, and he offers sacrifices, and it's wonderful. And Hashem smells the smell of the sacrifices, and he really likes it. Uh, and there's a Midrash, uh, Rashi doesn't mention this, but when we say at the end of Davening, every day, at the end of the Semana Esrei, um, we should uh, offer sacrifice, we should build a Mizbech and offer sacrifice, like they did in old days and in early times. It's referring to the... Uh, Sacrifices that Noah made. They were like the best sacrifices in the world, in history. But why does he offer sacrifices? Because he works out, but that's what Hashem wanted him to do. 
when you compare this Rashi and what it's saying about Noach to what we see by Abraham, we understand the difference between Noach and Abraham. We understand what Rashi pointed out at the very beginning of the parsha. Noach walked et elokim et halokim Noach with Hashem. Noach walked, and where did Abraham walk? Ahead of Hashem. And Rashi makes the distinction between the two. And he says Abraham was able to walk by himself, but Noach needed Hashem's support. And we have the famous question, why did Noach not plead for the people of his generation? And Abraham did plead for Saddam and Amara. Um, I gave a share on that to, uh, to, the, to the Mizrahi folk. Uh, there's lots of answers, but it's a big question. And the general picture we get is that Noach is very much a, uh, an inferior version of Abraham. And here... He produces these beautiful sacrifices, but Rashi says he only did it because Hashem hinted to him that he should do it. And it seems to me, and this is what I used to say until today, um, maybe this might be the last time I ever say this before because I'm not sure it's correct, that this Rashi is telling us about nature of Noah. He is never proactive. He's only reactive and he only offers a korban because Hashem has already hinted to him that that's what he should do. Uh, on that, just going back to my original question, which now links, because I was going to ask him, how does he know to kill an animal? How he might think that that is extremely inhumane or whatever it is. Oh, but there's already been sacrifices in the world. Oh, Adam Arishan brought sacrifices. We know Kain and Hevel brought sacrifices. Oh, okay, this is part of the Ramban's uh, attack on the Rambam. And the Rambam famously says sacrifices were only like a horat shah. They were only there to wean us off human sacrifices. The Rambam says, what are you talking about? Adam Arishan brought sacrifices. So, so that's, not, that's not such a chiddush. That's not such a new idea. Okay, why do I think this vote, which I've just shared with you, which I think is pretty good, is not actually correct in interpreting Rashi? Because if you look carefully at Rashi, I don't think he's answering that question. I don't think he's answering the question of why did Noah offer sacrifices? If you look carefully, I think he's answering a different question. He's answering, if you look at the Dibra Matchil of Rashi, Mikol Habahema Hatahara. Why did Rashi, sorry, Rashi's question is why did Noah Dafka offer the kosher animals as sacrifices? And you can extend this question in two possible directions. Why did he offer all the animals, all the kosher animals, including beasts and birds? Um, uh, like he went like the whole, he, he went through the whole larder of kosher animals. Like sounds like every kosher animal. Um, or you can look at the other way around. Why doesn't he offer non-kosher animals? If he wants to give a present to Hashem, he can offer non-kosher animals as well. So I, I think you could say that Rashi's answering either question. Why does he offer all the kosher animals he's got? Why doesn't he like save a few, put some in the freezer? Or, or let them roam in the paddock, even perhaps it would be even nicer. Or alternatively, why does he only offer kosher animals? Either way, Rashi is answering that question. And because the Dibra Matri of Rashi co- focuses on Mikal Habahima Hatahara, I think that that actually is the question that Rashi is answering. He's not answering the question that I wanted him to answer, which is, why did Noah offer sacrifices? Answer, Hashem hinted to him that that's what he should do. He's answering the question, why did Noah offer kosher animals? And the answer to that is, Noah realized that he was told to take in the extra kosher animals that he should now use those kosher animals as sacrifices. Was there a question? That's true. That's true. 
So, okay, in which case, yeah, so my second suggestion um, about is the question, why did he offer only kosher, not non-kosher? That's answered by the fact that there was nothing, there, there was no non-kosher animal spare. So, or maybe, maybe you could say that uh, this might not have been immediate, maybe this might have been a little bit later when they'd already reproduced, I don't know. Um, so I'll stick to the first version of my question, which I think is the stronger one. Mikol habahemahatara, all the kosher animals. Now, if you think about it, there aren't so many kosher animals. There's lots, lots, lots more non-kosher animals. But there's quite a few kosher birds. So there must have been quite a lot, um, five of each species to offer. It might have been quite, quite a big deal. So that would really uh, strengthen our understanding of Rashi's question. That's the only reason I was told to take the extra five of each kosher animal. That's the only purpose. You only need two to reproduce the species. So five must be spare. That's why I'm offering them all as kosher animals, as sacrifices. Okay, let's see what happens next. Pasuk kaf alef. Vayarach Hashem et reach hanichoach. Hashem literally smelt the pleasant smell. Uh, that phrase, Re'anichach, comes with all sacrifices. Later on in Vayikra, when we're told to bring sacrifices, Hashem wants a Re'anichach. Uh, by the way, I'll just mention that. Um, Rashi says on the Re'anichach, he doesn't say it here, but he says when in Vayikra, when we're told to bring sacrifices, the Re'anichach comes from Hashem being pleased that we are following his commandments. It's not, says Rashi, from a nice smell, a nice fragrance. It's, What? Exactly, which might not be very nice. Um, but it's interesting that, that the best way to please Hashem is to follow His commandments. Pretty good. Anyway, that's not what it says here. It just says, Hashem smelt the reach nichach. Vayoma Hashem el libo. Hashem said to His heart, pardon the anthropomorphism, Dibra Torah Balashem B'nai Adam, the Torah speaks in the language of man. So it means Hashem said to Himself, Lo osif l'kalel od et ha'adama. I will not continue to curse any more the ground, but avur ha'adam, because of man. Ki leiv ha'adam ra minu'urav. Because the, heart, the inclination of the heart of man is bad. Now, minu'urav looks like from his youth. Rashi will tell us it doesn't mean that, but we'll look, translate it as though it does. Velo osif od, and I will not continue any more, Lahakot et kol chai, to smite all living things, ka'asher asiti, as I have done. So this really, by the way, is a very, very significant verse. Um, it's saying, this really is the introduction, I keep using this phrase, to world 2.0. Hashem says, I'm going to relate differently to the world from now on. And he continues with that in the next verse as well. The world is going to now run on regular lines and I will not punish mankind because they're so bad, because I know they're bad. Because Yetzel leiv ha'adam ra minu'orav. By the way, this sort of mirrors um, and maybe extends, as we will see, what Hashem said earlier when he said in Perak Vav Pasuk Hay, if you turn to Perak Vav Pasuk Hay, this is before the flood, but it's leading into the flood. Vayar Hashem ki rabara at ha'adam ba'aretz. Hashem saw that the evil of man was great in the, uh, on the earth. V'chol yetzer machshavot libo 
and all the inclination of the thoughts of his heart, rak ra kol hayom, was only evil all day. Here, Hashem has realized something else, which, by the way, leads us into what Rashi is going to say. Somehow we're adding to what we said there in Vav uh, Hey, and now we're saying, Yetzalev ha'adam ra minorav, is evil from his youth. So, says Rashi on minorav, he says, minna'arav ketiv. It's written minna'arav, and it's not written minna'arav. Okay, a little bit of grammar here. So under the ayin is a kubutz, dot, 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 which is pronounced as an u. But normally, if the Torah wants to tell us there's an u, remember the Torah is written without vowels. How does it indicate it? A shuruk, which looks like? A vav with a... With a dot in the middle. Thank you. That's a shurak. And it makes the same sound as a kibbutz. And I think they're sort of interchangeable. You know, you can write it malay, you can write it chasa, but the Torah usually writes it malay. Um, and the the I'm not qualified to say, but I think so. And I'll tell you why. Because, I can't say every, because I, I can't be sure, but regularly, if, it, if it's written chasa, Rashi will comment and say, why is it chasa? And, and it makes sense, because when you write it without vowels, you need to put in the vav, because you can't see the kubots. Right? So you would expect it. And so Rashi makes the point that this is written irregularly. It's written without the shuruk. So although you do read it as minorav, because that's the word, you imagine it's written as minna'arav. In which case, it doesn't mean youth. It's a different word. Says Rashi, Mishanar Latsait Mime Imo. What's Naar? To wait, be awakened. Uru Uru Hayashenim. So from when it is awakened to come out from the inside of its mother, Nitan Bo Yetzahara. The Yetzahara is put into it. And there's an important point that Rashi's making. It's not Minorav. If it means his heart is, he's got a bad inclination from his youth, when he's youth, I don't know, but it's, maybe it's teenagehood, that's what we probably say today, maybe it means childhood, but it doesn't mean from the moment of birth. But when Rashi says, it's not minorav, it's minna'arav, mishna'ar, let mimei imo, from when he is awakened to come out from the body of its mother, i.e. from the moment of birth, to be absolutely precise, from the beginning of the birth process rather than the end of it, nitan bo yetzahara. Then Hashem puts into, oh, is put into him a yetzahara. And maybe that explains how it's added to Perik Vav Pasuk Hay, which didn't give a starting point. It just said, um, adam ra kol hayom. So human beings, they're bad all the time, or they had a bad inclination all the time. Here we're told that bad inclination... Uh, the good inclination, which comes later, we're told it comes in the mitzvah or bat mitzvah, doesn't really get a chance because the evil inclination has been there from before he was born. And that's why Hashem says, look, I get the point. He's got this evil inclination from before it was born. The good inclination comes later, so I can't be too harsh. That seems to be the implication. But the point of Rashi is, minu'arav doesn't mean from its youth, it means minna'arav from the time it starts to move out, i.e. to be born. Next thing that Rashi says, 
is why is does it say lo osif velo osif? If you look at the beginning of the verse, um, and you might contradict me straight away because osif is spelled chaser in this pasuk without a vav, and the second one is also osif without a vav. So my theory has completely collapsed. Okay, and Rashi doesn't comment on that. Uh, maybe it's different in this uh, formulation. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe a cholam is easier to deal with. A missing cholam is easier to accept than a missing shuruk. Um, I don't know. Sorry. Anyway, it does say lo osif twice. To, towards the beginning of the verse, it says lo osif lekalel od et haadama, and later on it says lo osif od lahakot et kol hachai. So why does it say it twice? It says Rashi. It doubles it to make it into a shavua, into an oath. So we have opinion in the Gemara, which is not actually the one we follow, that says if you promise something twice, it has the effect of a shavua. Interestingly, that's not how we pass in the Gemara, but Rashi doesn't always go with the way that we pass in the Gemara. Rashi is more interested in a way to explain something that fits the pshat. That solves the problem. And by saying that doubling it makes a shavua, he has solved two problems. The first is the obvious one. Why does it say la osif twice? Now you might point out that it's, I, won't, I won't continue, says Hashem, to do two different things. La osif la kalel od et hadama and la osif od la hakot et kolchai. I won't continue to curse the ground and I won't continue to smite the living things. However, Rashi seems to be implying that he could have said it as one. I won't continue to curse the ground or to smite the living things. It doesn't have to repeat lo osif. And because he did repeat lo osif, there must be a reason for it. And the answer is because by saying it twice, it makes it into a shavua, it makes it into an oath. Problem one solved, why does it say lo osif twice? But Rashi's got another problem in mind, which isn't here in our pasuk, it's in a different pasuk. It says Rashi, who shakatuv? That's what's written in Yeshaya Nun Dalatet, where Hashem says, "Asher nishbati me avur me Noach," where I made a shavua from passing the waters of Noach. So the Tanakh refers to a shavua relating to me Noach, and where and says Rashi, "V'lo matzinu ba shavua elazu," and we do not find a shavua except this one. Hashem doubles his words, and that is the Shavuah. And that's what Chachamim darshaned in Mesechet Shavuot. But as I say, if you look there, they actually, it's not our final Pesach, but nevertheless, it is a, a position. So, given that the Tanakh refers to a Shavuah al-Mei Noach, we have to find what that Shavuah is because if we look through the whole text, we won't find the Shavuah except here. So that's why Rashi tells us that the Pasuk says, Lo Osif twice. Okay. Now, I said that this Pasuk really says Hashem's going to run the world in a different way. There's going to be, it's going to be less harsh in a sense because Hashem accepts that Yetzir, Lev, Adam, Rami, Norav, and therefore, Clearly, therefore, Hashem is not going to smite everyone again. And the next Pasuk continues in the same theme. But this is how World 2.0 is going to work. Od kol yemei ha'aretz. So, from now on, or in, from, from 
Old here means, yeah, from now on. All the days of the earth, Zera the Katsir, the Kor, the Cham, the Kayitz, the Choref, the Yom, the Laila, Lo Yishboto. What does that mean? Sowing and reaping, and cold and hot, and summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. I've actually used Rashi's translating of Lo Yashpito, because it could have meant something else. Um, so the world's going to carry on. And spoiler alert, Rashi learns that if Hashem says all these things are not going to stop in the future, that means they did stop in the time of the Mabul, and Hashem's saying that's not going to happen anymore. The world is going to carry on on a normal, regularized way. And I'll tell you, we're not going to get there tonight, but next week we will get to the beginning of Peretet, which is the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach. It's not all seven of them, by the way. It's really two, depending how you count them. Um, but it's the crucial ones. And the idea of the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, as opposed to the Tariag Mitzvah that we have, is the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach are all about keeping the world going. That's... Um, it's going to get a little bit politically incorrect, but that's the task of the Bnei Noach. Our task with the Torah and the 613 mitzvah is to do more. But the task of the Bnei Noach and the purpose of the Sheva Mitzvah Bnei Noach is to keep the world running in its normal way. And that is why that this is introduced by, well, first of all, we've seen Pasuk Kafalov, but now Pasuk Kafbet, the message of Pasuk Kafbet is the world will continue in its normal way. But now what is all this Zera, the Katsir, the Kor, the Cham, the Kayetz, the Choref. It seems very repetitive. And what's it talking about? Cold and hot and summer and winter? Says Rashi, based on the Gemara. Old Kol Yemei Haaretz Vagome Lo Yishbatu. Sheish Itim Halalu. There are these six seasons. And as Rashi will explain, each of these six words, not including Yom Velayla, we'll explain that later. Each of these six words refer to a season. Now, we're used to having four seasons. The Torah gives us six, a 50% bonus. And Rashi will explain what these six seasons are. So, um, there are 12 months of the year, divided by six, gives you two months for each season. Just to confuse things, they don't start at the beginning of each month, they start in the middle of months. So they go from the middle of the one month through the next month, to the middle of the following month, as we will see. As we have seen, so first of all, he just sort of quotes a bit of the Gemara, just to give us a, a taster, but then he does actually go through and explain them all. Uh, as we learnt, um, for half of Tishri, and Marcheshvan and half of Kislev. So over two months from mid-Tishri to mid-Kislev, that's called Zera. Um, and the reason it's called Zera, this one Rashi doesn't spell out, Zera means planting, because that's the time you plant, you start planting your crops. In Northern Hemisphere, in the autumn, the early crops are planted at that time. And that's why it's called Zera. The next one is Chatsi Kislev, the Tevet, the Chatsi Shavat. So from mid-Kislev through Tevet to mid-Shavat, that's called Kor, or is it? Has anyone got Kor in your text or not got Kor in your text? Okay, because there are two versions. I have a Kor or Choref. And just bear in mind, one of them's the right version and one of them's not, but they both could be. The Gemara 
counts this season from mid-Kislev to mid-Shavat uh, as Chorev, what we call winter. So it actually would make sense for Rashi to be saying Chorev, but then again, Rashi doesn't always follow the Gemara. Sometimes he has his own reasons for giving his own Peshat. So it could be that he's calling it Kor. It's not both. It's one or the other. We're just not sure which text is right. And they've both got a good source. But just bear that in mind as we keep going through it. It could be one or the other for this period from mid-Kislev to mid-Shavat. Yeah. Okay. And he says Vachule. In other words, that's the end of the quote from the Gemara. That's really all he wanted to show us, that the Gemara talks about these six seasons. But now he's going to explain what the words referred to. So he says, that was the reference to the Gemara. Now he's speaking his own words and he's telling you what these periods are. Kor, cold, kasher michoref. That is harsher than winter. And uh, I don't know if he needs to say it to people like us who are very used to four seasons. But we're used to four seasons and we know the winter is cold. So we might have the question, what is cold if it's not winter? And what is winter if it's not cold? And the answer is Rashi, cold is something that's worse than winter. It's a period of the year which is particularly cold. So, um, again, Rashi has just said that it's mid-Kislev to mid-Shavat. Uh, but the Gemara says that's Choref. And then the, what Gemara calls Kor, cold, is mid-Shavat to mid-Nissan. Uh, I suppose... The first one is colder, which fits better with Rashi saying it's called Kor. Mid-Kislev to mid-Shavat is colder than mid-Shavat to mid-Nissan? Yeah, I think we're nodding there. Because mid-Shavat to mid-Nissan is spring, and it includes Tubishvat, and it's getting a bit springy. Um, so it makes, on that sense, it makes sense that Rashi is saying it's Kor, cold, from mid-Kislev to mid-Shavat, and it's Chorev from mid-Shavat to mid-Nissan. Anyway, what is Kor? Kor is harsher than Chorev. And then he says for Chorev, and now we we'll come to what's Choref. Eight zera saorim ukitniot hacharifin. It's the time for sowing barley and um, kitniot, legumes, which are harifin. Now, the word Choref is related to the word harif. What does harif mean? Spicy, hot. Okay, why is it spicy, hot? Right, why do you need to know the word charif? Because if you're like me, when if you order a shawarma or a falafel, you have to say no charif. It's the most important word to know. What's that got to do with winter? Which is charif. The word charif also is used to describe a person who is sharp, as in smart, as in gets things quickly. And that's the basis of the idea of charif. Charif is something, the things that happen quickly. So it's the time for planting the seeds that are going to grow quickly. So you don't have to plant them early in the zera season. <coughs> there are plants, there are seeds that you can plant later because they are quick. And you plant them in the time which is charef, and that's eight zera sa'orim v'kitnit, kitnyot ha'charifin. So it's the time for the fast-moving seeds which are called charifin. Lehit bashel maher, that ripen quickly. The who, and now I've got in brackets, kor, who, in brackets, chatsi shevet shavat va'adar v'chatsi nesen. So this is the period, which is like the beginning of spring, the end of what we would call winter and the beginning of what we would call spring. And that's the period from mid-shavat to mid-nisan. And that is choref, unless Rashi means it's called kor. Obviously, 
The earlier one was called Kor or Choref, and the second one is called Choref or Kor. As I said, uh, Rashi definitely means one or the other, but we're not quite sure. Yes? Um, the Tzokhoi, you know, the Torah, put, I might be wrong, and I might not have followed correctly, but to me, the, the Torah's not going in order of how Rashi's explaining the time periods. The, correct. Correct. The Torah lists them as pairs. Yeah. Rashi is now going through the year in order, but that's quite correct. Yes. Um, I heard a Midrash that before the flood, like it was a constant spring-like season and there weren't any seasons. Okay, we're going to get to that very soon. Yeah. Okay, because Rashi's going to relate to that. Mm. Not quite as explicitly as that, but we'll, we'll see what he says. Yeah. Um, but that was a good point. That, um, and Zerah and then Shetakor. Yes, the Torah lists them as pairs. Zerah and Katsir, plowing, uh, uh, sorry, sowing and reaping, cold and hot, summer and winter. And it, the Torah is listing them in, pair, in pairs. Rashi is listing them chronologically. Um, which is why, again, it would be better if it were Choref as the second season. Because then the season would go Zera, Choref, Kor. And then the opposite of Zera, opposite of Choref, opposite of Kor. Uh, it'd be a nice parallel. If Rashi um, gives us Kor as the second one and Choref as the third one, then the pattern breaks down. But we're up to Katsir. So what's the next season? Chatsi Nisan V'iyah V'chatsi Sivan. It's called cutting, harvesting. Half of Nisan and Iyah and half of Sivan. That doesn't need any explanation because that is the harvest period. What you harvest in Nisan? Bali. What you harvest in Sivan? Anyone? Oh dear. Wheat. Okay. What's the special offering brought on in Nisan? The Omer of Bali. What's the special offering brought in Sivan, on Shavuos? Lechem, made out of? Wheat, okay? Yeah, so it's from the beginning of the harvest season to the end of the harvest season of the grain. And finally, Megillat Rut. She arrives at the beginning of which harvest and stays to the end of which harvest? From barley to wheat, okay. Um, so Katsir is the time of, of cutting down the grain. Excuse me. <laughs> which is mid-Nissan to mid-Sivan, followed by Kayetz, summer. Why is Kayetz called Kayetz? Do any of our Israeli friends know why Kayetz is called Kayetz? Kotz is a thorn. Good guess. Kets. Completely wrong. Kayetz is like N. N-O. Uh, also interesting, not what Rashi says. Okay, not what the Gemara says. Says Rashi, Kayetz. Chatsi Sivan Tammuz v'chatsi Av. So from mid-Sivan through Tammuz to mid-Av. That's what we would call, by the way, the summer. It's the height of the summer. Who's aman lekita te'enim? It's the time for gathering in figs. V'zaman shemavayashim otam besadot. And the time when you dry the figs in the fields. Ushmo kayetz. And its name is kayetz. Kamo v'halechem v'hakayetz le'echol hana'arim. In Shmuel Bet we find um, that people were given bread and dried figs to eat for the lads to eat. Kayetz there means dried figs. And kayetz is dried fruit. And kayetz is called kayetz because that's when you leave the fruit out in the fields to dry. And that, at least according to Rashi, according to the Gemara, is why kayetz is called kayetz. There you go. Okay. Sorry? I don't know. I don't know if you go into the shuk and ask for dried figs and you say kayetz if they'll know what you mean. I, I don't know. <laughs> Okay. Just by the way, what is the name? Um, Israelis or anybody else for summer camp or like 
if you send your kid to Gan and then it stops being Gan and starts being something else and it's exactly the same except you pay more for it. What's that called? Ketana. Why is it called Ketana? We'll find out. Okay. So next one is the Chum and Hot. Chum. Husof Yomot Hachama. It's the end of the days of the sun. Chatsi Av the Elul Chatsi Tishri. From mid Av to mid Tishri. And if you've been following, that takes us back to where we started. Shaha Olam Cham Biyoter. But the world is exceptionally hot. So even though the earlier part of the year was called summer, that was from Sivan to uh, Av. Nevertheless, after the summer, after what we're now calling summer, you get really hot. As we learned in Masechet Yoma, Shilhei Kaita Kashe Mikaita. Now Shilhei means the end in Aramaic, and Kaita is the Aramaic word for Kaitz. Hence, Ketana, which is Aramaic for Kayetz. There you go. Okay? So the Gemara says the end of the summer is harsher than the summer. What does it mean? It means it gets hot at the end of the summer, which, by the way, makes sense climactically because the world warms up during the sunny time and the warmest part is at the end of the sunny time when the world has heated up. And conversely, when the world cools down, the coldest part is at the end of the winter not the beginning of the winter. So similarly, here we have Chom following on from Kayetz. So Rashi has explained that each of these terms is not just a generic reference to sowing and reaping and uh, hot and cold will never stop, but it refers to the cycle of the year. So it's telling us that the cycle of the year will not stop. It will carry on as normal. Um, do you have in brackets old kol yamei kulama tamid kamo old tomatobo? No, okay, fine. Um, it's another text. It doesn't really seem to fit in here. It's another way of explaining old, but we'll go on to the next words. Yom v'layla lo yishbotu. Day and night will not cease. Says Rashi, Michlal sheshavtu kol hamabul. This tells you that day and night did cease all the days of the flood. Shalo shimshu hamazalot. Because the mazalot, the constellations which apparently control the movements of the heavens, did not function. And it was not distinguishable between day and night. Now, we've only got a few minutes to go, but there's a few things to say. First of all, what does Rashi say? What does Rashi emphasize? Will not stop now because they did stop during the flood. And what does Rashi not make that point about? Okay, what he's saying is he makes the point that day and night won't stop because they did stop during the flood. Why doesn't Rashi make the same point about the seasons? Now, the Torah is listing them all together. The Torah lists in one go six seasons and day and night, and they won't stop. So Rashi says, ah, this shows you that day and night did stop during the flood. Why doesn't he say this shows you that the six seasons and day and night did stop during the flood? And the answer is because with the world is underwater, obviously there's none of that agricultural stuff going on. Because notice he said for each of the seasons, it wasn't so much about what the weather was like, but what people do in that time. Zera is the time when they sow. Katsir is the time when they reap. So obviously when the world's underwater, none of that is happening. So obviously those six seasons stopped during the Mabul. So Rashi doesn't need to tell us that they stopped during the Mabul because that's obvious. Day and night, maybe they did stop, maybe they didn't stop. 
Turns out that they did stop. And this, by the way, is the source of the idea that you mentioned, that, that during the flood, there were no seasons. It was just oh, all... I heard in general that, like, the whole world... Oh, before the flood? Yeah. Ah, yes, you're right. I, I heard that as well. And I heard an explanation that it was due to the axis of rotation was vertical. It was different, yeah. And then it was put on a slant, and that's what creates the seasons. Um, all I would say is, that's not what Rush is saying. That's not what Rashi's saying. Rashi's saying that certainly day and night stopped during the flood. And I think the way I, I, I've got no reason to believe that he's not, saying the, not reading the same about the rest of the seasons. But during the flood, they didn't operate. And that's what Hashem promises. They won't stop, as in they did stop during the flood, but they won't stop from now on. Oh, um, yes. Really quickly, um, okay, now I'm going to stop you there. Hold that question until next week because I don't want people to relate for Marif. So we will stop the shear now. We've got a little bit more. We've got a little bit more of this puzzle to do, and then we'll carry on with Perik Tet. Thank you very much.